0: The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way. Welcome to The Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. What an awesome guest we have in The Business Lounge today. He came here from South Africa at just age 26 and soon founded Comtech, which became Australia's first ever unicorn. The company was sold around 14 years later for about $1.1 billion. But not content with that, he also co-founded one of Australia's most successful venture capital firms, OIF Ventures. It outperforms almost all of the others. And just because he hasn't got enough to do, in his spare time, he has authored one of the best business books out there titled The Dumbest Guy at the Table. It's an honor to have him in the business lounge. Welcome, David Shane. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too, mate. So you grew up in South Africa. You immigrated in 86 to Australia. What were your first impressions of Australia? let me say the first
1: experience in australia was i i came here in 1981 end of 1981 january 82 and i was 21 years old and at that time in south africa because of apartheid there was no international sport and in 81 82 the west indies were here pakistan was here I came with a really good friend of mine, a guy, Robbie Brozen, who was the founder of, oh, I say, the world's best chicken, Nando's, mm-hmm. which I had for lunch today, actually. Beautiful. And we literally took a car and drove up the coast. We left Sydney and drove up to Noosa. We didn't spend more than an hour in the car and whichever beach we landed on. We would spend time on. Fabulous. In the afternoon, we'd watch cricket. In the evening, we'd go to a pub. And the next day, back in the car, another yeah. beach, cricket, pub. And we did that for about three weeks. And I thought, this is God's own country. <laughs> and always made up my mind that when I did emigrate, there was no, this was God's own country. And and I must say, 37 years later, I don't feel any different. I feel I'm privileged to live in this country. And uh, there's been no better place to raise kids. And uh, we're, very, we're all very lucky to live here.
0: Where were you in South Africa?
1: I lived in... Johannesburg, which was not the prettiest city in the world. It was where gold was discovered, and so there was nothing pretty about it, but that became the capital of pretty much the economic capital of South Africa. That was the big hub.
0: You arrived here, and pretty soon after, a few years after, you founded Comtech. When you started out, was it your vision to create an enormously successful tech company, or was it just to give yourself a job? Yeah, I did work I had a job in South
1: Africa at Price Waterhouse. Absolutely loved my, loved going to work every day because I was motivated and inspired by what I was doing at the time. And I had no say in what I did. I, I, I'd say something to my boss and my boss was, mate, that's my job, your job's to do, not to think. And uh, nine months later, yeah, it was a really risky decision. I was newly married, I had a young son of about, Yeah, nine months and decided if I ever wanted to start a company this was the time because the opportunity cost was so low I was earning $2,000 a month at the time and I really always say if I was earning a market related salary I'd been offered a job by one of of my customers at $4,000 a month and if I was probably earning that I probably wouldn't have taken the plunge of starting my own business it was just I thought how much do I have to sell just to get back to where I am on a salary in a job that I'm actually hating and I thought the opportunity cost was the best time for me to start a company if I ever did want
0: it. You make it sound like it's an easy decision but for so many people it isn't. You've got a young kid, what did your wife say when you said I'm going to give up my salary and start a new business?
1: I'll say my wife and my dad, who still lived in South Africa, were unbelievably supported. You didn't ask me what my mother-in-law said. (laughs) My mother-in-law literally pointed a finger in my face and said to me, you get yourself a job like any normal South African. (laughs) And and she did say to me two years later, she said, why didn't you give me any shares? (laughs) Brilliant. That's absolutely a true story.
0: So So back then, what was the, we see... uh, the Australian tech scene is pretty sophisticated these days compared to most countries. What was it like back then? So it was really unbelievably early
1: days of the, I'll say the personal computer industry. So computers have been around for many years, but used by big banks, retail companies, the Woolies and the Coles. That was mainframe, the mainframe computing era, people weren't using computers at work and people weren't didn't have a computer at home. So I got into the personal computer industry really early. I think I was really lucky enough to be around four massive waves. The first was the computer, the the personal computer wave, where computers have become pervasive, that there's pretty much a computer in every single household and every single desktop. There was the internet wave, which was a massive change to the way we live, work, and play. Mobile computers is... And mobile computing was the next massive wave, and I think the next one, we're seeing it as we speak, which is in artificial intelligence, which I think will have huge ramifications for all of us, both positive and potentially negative.
0: And are you seeing any decent investments at this early stage in AI coming your investment fund?
1: A lot of our portfolio companies are embracing artificial intelligence as part of the solutions that they're offering their customs. Artificial intelligence has been around for many years but it, as was the internet had been around almost since the 60s. Mm. It was used by the Department of Defense in the United States and later on it was given to universities but it wasn't in, an, in a format mm. that you and I could use. It was only when Mark and Andreessen invented the browser that it became unbelievably pervasive and easy to use so that Everyone was able to search and navigate the web. In fact, the first browser was called the Netscape Navigator. I think, to me, ChatGPT uh, is to artificial intelligence what the
0: browser is to or was to the Internet. That's a great analogy. I've never thought of it that way. Okay, so... You build this huge company and everybody looks at these companies from outside and they think, wow, that guy's obviously a genius and or how lucky he was, etc." whatever people's views are. But the company went extraordinarily well. But there must have been behind the scenes some tough times. And yet you took on no debt and you were profitable from where it goes. So yeah. were there tough times?
1: First of all, I'm definitely not a genius. In fact, as you said at the outset my book is called the dumbest guy at the table for good reason and second of all you mentioned luck and i had a lot of lucky breaks we capitalized on the lucky breaks that we had so probably the best way to answer your question is were there tough times i'll never forget i was in hawaii at a navelle that was one of our suppliers' conferences in and we probably had a hundred people in the company at the time one of our our customers, a guy Steve Stewart, said to me, Dave, he said, are you finding CompTech harder to run now that you're a bigger company than when you were a, a tiny, small little company? And I remember looking at him and saying, Steve, I can't think of one quarter where I could say July 91 to October 91 was a piece of cake. There were always challenges. And if it was that easy, everyone would start it. There was never a period where we didn't have a challenge always so we're lucky there was always a fire burning somewhere every day someone once said to me dave i'm worried you look tired i said you should worry when i don't look tired (laughs) because every day i would be thinking about what more can we be doing for our staff and what more can we be doing for our customers because we can always be better
0: yeah it reminds me of frank Lowy saying when they're asking why we're still motivated in his 60s and 70s and he said I have a siege mentality that at any point I could be attacked. It's a great attitude that it seems you share. And I'm really glad you said it because I think a lot of young people wanting to open a business and having maybe a year or two into a business, they think there's something wrong when something's wrong. And if the more people like you who tell people the truth that even when you're successful, there's a million nightmares, I think people feel a lot better about it.
1: I think if you look at Afterpay, which in my opinion has been one of the most unbelievable success stories Australia's ever had, from the outside, like when I look at that company, it looks like everything just couldn't have gone more smoothly from the time they started till the time they executed. And But I bet if you spoke to Nick and Anthony and said, tell us about some of the challenges you had, there'd be, there'd be a long list of challenges that they faced and... And how to overcome, it didn't just happen that they ended up with the outcome that they did. And that's the one thing I'd say to any founder looking to start a business, that there's some things that are in your control and there's some things that are out of your control. And if you're unbelievably obsessive about the things that you can control, it becomes much easier to manage those things that are out of your control.
0: When you sold Comtech, you sold it at your age, 40, you left the company at 41, right? Yep, yep. I was really surprised when you wrote in your book, yes, I was burnt out and needed a breather, but throwing in the towel so early has definitely been a regret. Why is that? How old are you, Simon? I am 58 and, and a half. And you feel an old guy? Not in the slightest. Okay,
1: well, that's good to hear because when I was 40 or 41, I, I looked at myself and I thought I knew the amount of energy that was required to run that business I just felt I was burnt out couldn't do anything even though i I could just see how the internet was going to change the world and I, I regret that I didn't have another crack being 63 now I feel wow like how could I even have thought that 40s 40s yeah, old yeah uh, yeah when yeah 20 years have passed and I know what yeah, what it's like to be 45 and what it's like to be 50. And uh, yeah, I
0: think I could have had another go. But couldn't you argue that what you're doing now with OIF Ventures w- could quite potentially have greater impact than almost any company, a uh, single company?
1: I'm really lucky enough to have yeah a phenomenal team. We have uh, Jeff Levy, my original partner, as he always says, yeah, it's good to work with people who have no hair, which is Jeff, and grey <laughs> hair, which is me. But we also have, yeah, a phenomenal team. Our yeah, two of our partners. The one is has just turned forty. The other one is thirty three, and the rest of the team is even younger. So I work with a young team, and yeah, I really believe I've been given the opportunity thanks to yeah, the yeah, working with amazing young people to have another crack at building an amazing company.
0: Yeah, and just to clarify for the listeners, we're talking about a venture capital company that is certainly the results of its first fund absolutely phenomenal compared to other Australian venture capital companies and frankly any of them around the world. You've got so much experience with startups. First of all, your own, then secondly, literally every day of the week just about you're meeting founders. What do you see, if any, the differences are between founders back when you started your original company and founders now?
1: When I started Comptech, really what I did was I would say I rode on the coattails of successful companies. Whoever was the hottest company in the US at the time, I would be their partner in Australia. So the analogy today would be saying, yeah, if Apple dominated the smartphone market, I wanted to be their distributor in Australia. So I didn't have to create my own brand in terms of building my own. I didn't have to build my own IP. So I really had a distribution center. We were a bank and a warehouse for our overseas vendors. My dream was to do it the other way around. Australia is 2% of the global market. The U.S. is still about 50% of the world market. So if you look at what Atlassian and Canva have done and achieved... That would have been my dream, to be able to use Australia as the tech hub mm-hmm. but recognize that Atlassian is Atlassian and Canva is Canva because they dominate the U.S., not because they dominate Australia. They dominate Australia as a consequence of being the market leader in their respective fields in a global market. When I sold CompTech, I then got involved in a number of smaller companies and that were developing their own IP. And there was no opportunity to use the internet as a way of selling your product. Mm. So if you wanted to go and demonstrate back-of-house software for the fast food industry to KFC, you literally had to get on a plane mm. and go and demo the software. And they may say to you, this is not exactly what we're looking for. And uh, so th- the second thing is, I think because of the success that people like, Canva and Atlassian and Richard White at Wise Tech have had. I think Australia really is regarded as an innovation powerhouse today. And if you were a successful founder in Australia and you wanted to raise capital in the US, I think because of the success of Australian companies, even five years ago, they would have said, if you want us to put money into your company, you get your butt over and you come and live in, in, in San Francisco. And you, today, founders can base themselves in australia and build global companies uh, raise capital externally or from overseas companies as well as build their businesses using australia as a hub we develop your technology but then execute from a sales and marketing perspective out of the u.s which then has massive impacts in other markets around the world the business
0: lounge check in because you never know who's there disrupts radio 20 years ago to open up in the States to sell something in the States was like selling something on the moon for an Australian company and now the people are graduating from school and they just think it's normal to open up in another country
1: What I think Australians really understand is that it's no use being the king of Australia. Mm. If you want to be successful, you have to be king of the world. And there are some companies we had a very successful exit in our first fund called EFT Sure. We invest in that company recognising that it was always an Australia only product. It was one that matched your BSB and account number to an account name to make sure that a company paying a supplier was paying a bona fide supplier. And we had a great exit. The founder had a great exit. But if you're going to make a generic product like a canvas, you have presentation software or an Atlassian type product. i give an example. We had speech recognition software with the market lead in Australia. We sold to Telstra, Optus, Vodafone. The trouble was our competitor in the US was selling into a market that was 15 times the size. Yeah. So if we were doing... F- 10 million dollars of revenue they were doing 150 million dollars of revenue they were putting 10 percent back into r&d they were spending more on r&d than what our total turnover was so eventually we got beaten and we had to sell the company to a u.s company we didn't execute quickly enough in the it was a company called holly Mm. and actually the founder what he sent to me in 2000 it was Holly, what time does the ferry leave from Circular Quay to Manly? Holly, what time will the, what will the weather be like in instead? Wow. And so, if I gave you that business plan today, you would have said that sounds like Siri or Alexa. Yeah. It was amazing technology, amazing product, but probably one of the things we look at when evaluating opportunities is have you got the timing right? And uh, hmm. in that case, it was probably too early because speech was not as pervasive. Then, as it is today.
0: Extraordinary. So you went on to co-found OIF Ventures, which is, as mentioned, a venture capital firm. Now, for those who aren't acquainted with venture capital firms, it would be quite typical, I think, that maybe, what, one out of a 100 companies that come looking for funds, uh, investment from you would achieve it?
1: So we probably look at twenty opportunities a week, and we are one of a number of venture capital funds in Australia. So we'd be no different to uh, the other funds that are raising, that have raised capital and are looking to deploy that capital. So some opportunities that we get, we can literally spit out straight away, because one is it could be too early for us. We're we're a company that invests. Where there's a product, there's customers and some revenue. Mm. So we don't invest on a PowerPoint presentation. If someone's really early, we politely tell them it looks like a great opportunity. Please keep us posted when you've when you found product market fit and have got those first customers, etc. We, so we're the next check. Mm-hmm. So generally, the first check that someone gets either it comes from what's commonly referred to as the three Fs, you know, family, friends, and fools. Or it could be from an earlier stage venture capital fund than ourselves. And sometimes people come to us when the opportunity is too late. You know, for example, if Canva was raising money, mm. we've missed the boat. So we like to be, we like to write a check out. The size check is probably three to $5 million. And typically we want to own about, 20 to 25 percent. We always want to be minority shareholders. We want the founder. If they execute, this is going to be there. They've hit the jackpot, and it's a, yeah, it's a life-changing opportunity. So that's the stage that we invest at. And so probably, as I say, we see 20 a week, and we probably invest in about average seven to eight companies a year.
0: Phenomenally difficult for a company to get money from you and that's probably pretty true of other venture capital companies as uh, firms as well so my question is how come you guys have been so successful so much more successful than many australian venture capital companies what do you do differently
1: yeah i don't want to think we run out yeah if with blinkers on and but if i had to worry about all the other guys in the industry i wouldn't sleep at all at night we see ourselves as having two customers one is the founder of the company, and the other one are the investors in our fund who have entrusted us with their capital. And somehow we have to keep both happy. And I really believe that we genuinely see our founders as our customers. And more importantly, I think they would tell you that if you called them. In fact, if you were pitching to me today and I really wanted to invest in your business, I'd say, Simon, here's 40 companies that we've invested in over the last eight years, if you call any of them and ask them what value we have added to their business aside from a check. There's probably a hundred different venture capital funds in Australia. Lots of high net wealth. Family offices will invest in startups as well. So if money is the commodity, the only way we can differentiate ourselves is the value that we can add to that portfolio company outside of just writing that check. Mm. And If we do a great job supporting our founders, probably we'll take care of our other customer, which is our investors, by delivering exceptional
0: returns. 100%. Makes total sense. Almost no one's ever been inside a venture capital firm. Take us through a typical day in the life of a VC. What actually happens?
1: We'll get people who email us with a pitch deck and say they'd love to come and chat to us. Typically, software is a service type company. They've got customers. They've got about a half a million dollars of recurring revenue. They'll come and pitch to us, and you know, generally, the first pitch, there'll be two of us from a team. If we're really excited about it, we'd ask them to come back again and meet more uh, people from the team. Yeah, if we're not interested, by the way, I always say the best thing that you can do as a venture capital fund is, you know, the second best thing to writing a check is a quick no. Mm. It requires an inordinate amount of time for a founder to, mm. to spend raising capital. So the best thing you can do is saying, Simon, we think it's a great idea, but it's not for us at this stage mm. or it's not for us full stop. And uh, so we'd be evaluating a number of opportunities and then we'd be... Talking to existing portfolio companies across our funds and really trying to support them in a whole lot of different ways, and I think, really, I always used to say in my old company, you only know how good your suppliers when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, and and I think the shit has hit the fan in in the startup. I feel that founders today have really been pushed. First of all, yeah, you know, there were not many CEOs who had to go through a pandemic work from home is unbelievably challenging. Mm. I know I was given the opportunity to either come into the studio to do this with you, or it could have been much easier to do it at at the office or at home and do it over Zoom. I I personally am a huge believer in, if you want to build a relationship and you want to build a team, the best way to do it is face-to-face. Probably in my career, and at 63, it's a pretty long career, so it's honestly been the toughest time to attract and retain staff. But it was very easy to get capital. Unbelievably, people were throwing money just to get people were saying, missed Atlassian, missed Canva, missed Afterpay. This is the next big thing. And people were really paying huge prices, in some cases ridiculous valuations, to invest in companies. All of that changed last year in February when the markets tanked. And founders who were told, grow, don't worry about profitability are now being told you need to understand how you're going to make a buck you need to cut your costs, so we told you last year we said higher, higher, higher now we're saying fire (laughs) yeah, I think it's been really challenging times for founders So we are spending a lot of time with our founders, trying to work with them to make sure that that we give them the best chance to help them, they've got to help themselves as well we back them to run the business. We don't run the business. As I said, we're always minority shareholders, but we really try and provide the best advice for them to get them through this pretty tough and challenging environment. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, the advice is worth more than the money. I think so. as a founder myself, yeah, I had Bob Mansfield as my chairman. It was awesome to have someone with a bit of experience as a sounding board and when you are feeling down in the dumps and you often do, and it's very normal, is just to have someone that you really can rely on and that you trust to provide some valuable input is worth a lot. That's for sure.
0: The Business Lounge. Check in, because you never know who's there. Disrupts Radio. You really have ridden one of the best... Australian business books that I've read in a very long time. And I'd say for two reasons. A, because you've actually done it. And I think so many business authors have not. And then secondly, that I think there's an honesty to how you write, which is also missing in a lot of business books where they're not all, but one of the primary motivations of an entrepreneur often writing a book is to gloat about how good they are. And there's a humility in how you write which I think is really valuable. And an example of that is right at the start of your book when you talk about some really interesting advice that you would give your three sons if they wanted to open a business. And it was completely opposite to what I thought. Do you want to go through that? So, first of all, thank you so much
1: for that endorsement of the book. The advice I'd give my boys is, if any of you want to start a company, I'll back you to the hilt. But if after a reasonable period of time, you're not earning at least as much as you would on a job, and two, you're not building an asset that you can sell one day, don't waste your bloody time.
0: That is absolutely priceless. And I hope everybody's listening to this who's thinking of opening a business, because what we see is so many people, they open a business, it goes poorly, it never gets better, but through their dogged determination, which is to a certain extent a great virtue, they stay in there. And sometimes 10 years later, they're still earning less than they would have in in a job, refusing to give up. And I think it's brilliant, that whole formula of rejecting.
1: And Simon, I learned that from The first startup that I was involved in, which was Holly, that was a speech recognition company. The founder was exceptional, a guy, Lance Burks. He actually helped define my career for where I am today. I did nothing for a year after selling Comtech, and uh, it was debilitating doing nothing. As I said, I was 41, then going from working a million miles an hour to absolutely nothing. was horrible. And uh, Lance asked me if I could help him. And six months after helping him, he said, Dave, I can't thank you enough for helping me. And I looked at him, I said, Lance, I can't thank you enough for helping me. And that really defined my career. But mm. Lance could have been working at a Cisco, earning at least three or $400,000 a year with stock options. After a couple of years, you could just feel the company wasn't going to succeed. And we sold our share of the company. Lance stayed on for another exactly what you said for about another 10 years he was earning about $120,000 a year for 10 years ended up selling the company and literally got nothing and I don't think ever recovered from that financially it was a really poor decision everybody fears failure but sometimes you've literally got to say I've given it my best I've really tried unfortunately it hasn't worked out the way I would have loved it to work and it's time to call it a day
0: yeah, really good advice. One of the big takeaways I take from your book is the importance of customer obsession. the Looking at a, the customer experience and trying to elevate it. And you, in some respects, you were selling some pretty dry products to most people. Do you think that most companies these days underrate the importance of customer experience?
1: I speak about customer obsession, but... In addition to that, talk about staff obsession, that we were obsessed about genuinely taking care of our customers and our staff and our business partners. I really believe you can't deliver exceptional customer service if you don't have exceptional staff. And uh, so I really believe that a lot of people say our people are our number one asset, but don't actually follow through on that. And we really believe that our people are our number one asset. And. uh, And that's why we were able to deliver exceptional customer service. So if you take our business and you talk about the challenge that a founder would have today to the challenges that I had, as I said, I rode on the coattails of successful US companies. The more successful that company was, the less leverage you had with that vendor. So just to keep it in today's terms, if I was Apple's partner in Australia, I'm going to have extremely little leverage with Apple they're going to be the dominant player. And generally, a company like Apple wouldn't have one partner, one distributor in Australia. They'd have multiple. So we were selling the exact same product that three or four other distributors were selling. And the only way we could differentiate ourselves was by the people that were selling and supporting that product. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so all the major products that we represented, even in the case of companies that did have four distributors – we would always have seventy or seventy five percent market shares, so we had that critical mass to invest in our people to invest in our infrastructure whereas our competitors who slowly went out of business just didn't have that critical mass to invest so so that was our challenge that if you wanted to do if you wanted to play with the top guys, you had to recognize where you fitted in the relationship you were never going to be you're never it's like when you get a new version of the Apple software, they say, do you agree to the terms? Mm. No, actually, the clause number, whatever, <laughs> as you just click that button, it was pretty much the same. When we got a distribution contract from one of the global leaders, you just ticked the box and said, yep. And then you had to work out how you're going to differentiate yourself, as opposed to where you own your own IP and you control your own destiny. But then there's other challenges of how you build, how you have to build the business and build your brand and and, and compete on a global Mm. basis.
0: So how did you create customer experience? Did you just say to your account executives who are dealing with the customer, be, in essence, be really nice to them? Or did you design, did you architect an experience for the customer? So I think what I think
1: I did from the really early days was I always spoke about legendary customer service. And to me, customer service is pretty basic. And all is what a customer wants, and all of us are customers at one point in time or another, is you want accurate information, you want a prompt response, and you never want to be kept in the dark. Mm. There's nothing worse than if you've got a problem at home with your plumbing. And the plumber says, don't worry, Simon, I'll be around there at at 5 o'clock. You shoot home from the city. The plumber's not there at 5. You're waiting at 6. At 7, you still haven't heard anything. You're pissed off as hell. The next day, you go to work smelling. Mm -hmm. If the plumber had picked up the phone at 2 and said, Simon, I really apologize. I'm not going to be able to make it at 5, but I will be able to get there by 7 tomorrow morning. You may not be ecstatic, but at least you know where you stand. So we really did drum that. Really early on, and we used to recognise people for delivering exceptional uh, customer service, for going above and beyond for our for our customers, and uh, and we were recognised by our customers as delivering the best. When I started, my competitor was a company called Datamatic. They would have gone down as one of the lucky breaks. I would have written yeah. a, a chapter on them in my book, on my chapter on lucky breaks. If I wanted to be 1% better than Datamatic, I would have still been a lousy company. My benchmark, in my day, there was a company called Compaq Computers. They were absolutely the best company in the PC industry at the time, and I made it my goal to be better than Compaq. Even though we didn't compete at all, mm. that was a company that I aspired to want to be better than. and. Uh, we spoke about it, but more important, on, on, we actually delivered on it. That, and I think that's the most important thing about any form of leadership is what you say, you do. Mm,
0: 100%. And aligned with that, of course, is company culture. Now, of all the topics in business, people talking about their culture is some of the emptiest, I, I think, uh, that occurs. The CEOs will brag about their culture, and then you talk to the staff and they say there is none (laughs) or what is is bad. But you're really serious about company culture. Why do you think it's so important? Does it really affect the bottom line? Uh, I have absolutely
1: no doubt about it, and I can honestly say that from now, over a period of time that I know at Comtech, we had an amazing culture, and I'm often What makes me so proud is I still see people to this day and say, Dave, the best company that I've ever worked at in my career is Comptech. And I really believe it's because we did what we said. Our company philosophy is really simple. We take care of our customers, our staff, and our business partners. And as in the book, I explain what we did, and it's not rocket science. Often the rocket science is what people actually do the product that they've developed or the service they provide and then they get the basics wrong I don't know if you watch Ted Lasso but you know when Ted Lasso in the first series says to Nathan the water boy I said Nathan why don't you get me one of your famous drinks and he said what did you call me he said I called you Nathan that is your name isn't it he said yeah but no one's ever called me by my name before (laughs) and it's often just little simple things just treating people with respect and uh, no matter where they work and understanding that it's respect for the person and the role not thinking that one role yeah if you're really part of a team it doesn't matter (laughs) But I just can't emphasise enough that I'm a big believer in, in in the power of a team. And in that case, if you're talking about a team, it doesn't matter if you're the goalkeeper, the wicked keeper, the best bowler, the star batsman. It's no one is bigger than the team. And it's having respect for
0: understanding and recognising that every role is critical if you want to win. Mm, for sure. And we see these articles about these typically internet companies where everybody's riding a skateboard around the office and there's games everywhere and water pistols and free lunches for everybody. What do you think about that when it comes to culture? I'm going to give you a
1: completely different example if that's okay. Sure. And then I'll come back to your question. So I'm going back 25 years. We used to do technical training, it was $400 a day in, I'll say, 2000. It was a lot of money, and a training course used to take about five days. And we used to have an in-house chef, and the chef used to cook really good lunches for the people who had come on our training course. And I'll never forget, someday, one day, some guy said, "said Dave, the food is amazing over here. I said, mate, for 400 bucks a day, you can get a pretty good feed anywhere. What's the quality of the training like? Yeah. Everything else was a value-add. Our training center was above Wynyard Station, so unbelievably convenient. We trained on the best computer equipment. We served amazing lunches. But if the quality of the training was lousy, what the other stuff was just yeah irrelevant. It was just a value-add. Mm. And I think it's the same with company culture, that at the end of the day, if... You don't go back to what I said earlier on in terms of respect for the role and respect for the person, and actually deliver on that, and actually really live and breathe that. And and critically, any leader, as I said at the outset, your words, your actions have to match your words. Everything else is a bonus. Bringing your puppy to work counts for nothing if you if no one has regard for you as at for your position. So I think those things are all nice little value adds. But what's more important is the basic reason why you're going, you know, are you valued for the work that you're doing for your organization? Yeah. And I think a lot of the founders yeah, are going to pretty quickly have to find out that Google can provide free lunches and yoga classes and recharge days because they print money. A lot of the founders and startups don't. Mm. That's just the nature of. There was a time where Google didn't didn't provide all those services because they couldn't, and and I think founders are going to have to learn today that you have to cut cut your cloth to measure what you're actually delivering. And now that money is not cheap and it's not that easy to raise capital, I think founders will say do we still want to give free lunches or free whatever or do we want an extra three months runway? The Business Lounge.
0: Check in because you never know who's there. Disrupts Radio. Gallup did an incredible research study on four million American workers and found that what people wanted more than lunches and even pay rises was just to be appreciated, to be recognised. I I, I always say that the
1: cheapest bonus that you can give in any organisation is to say thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they don't hear it. I think it was certainly over 60%, I don't remember the exact percentage, but over 60% of American workers had not been told they'd done a good job once in the last year. Yeah, And that's what they're they're crying out for. So continuing on with culture, you and I are both big uh, rugby union fans. And in your book, I really love some of the references to the All Blacks. And for people who have no interest in rugby union, just know this, that the All Blacks New Zealand rugby team is not only the most successful rugby team, it is the most successful sports team ever in the history of mankind. They have won over 70% of their games over the last century. And no, no one in any sport can get close to that. So their culture is pretty amazing. And there was one aspect of the culture that you talked about. In fact, there, there are quite a few in, in that section. And it was this concept that even though these guys are absolute superstars, that they have a rule in the All Blacks that they have to clean the dressing room shed, every one of them. What do you think that means? It means that it doesn't
1: matter who you are in an organisation – everyone's pee's the same colour at the end of the day and uh, and I think I think Richie McCaw who was one of the one of the most successful New Zealand captains ever was the first guy to go and sweep the sheds and I think mm-hmm. anyone in that team would go and say if Richie's sweeping the sheds if he's not too big and too proud to sweep the sheds who am I you don't get respect you earn it
0: Finally We've got a lot of listeners, I presume, who will never own their own companies, but are very keen to, to do really well in their business careers. What advice would you give them? So probably
1: the best advice is my middle son has just taken a new job and he starts on the 1st of July and he asked me that question. And I said, what I'd be doing is I'd go to your boss and say, what value can I add to you? To make your life easier what can I take off your plate and uh, I'd always be thinking in terms of what value you can add to the, to your team, to your organisation to help improve customer service and staff satisfaction and and yeah I, I think of that every day I always say to our team what value can we be adding for a portfolio company today and I think it It's the same for an individual. What value can I be adding to my company?
0: Great lessons from a great business mind. David Shane, thanks so much for being on The Business Lounge. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. Folks, that's real wisdom from the smartest guy at the table himself, David Shane. So what have we learned today? So many things, but five stand out for me. First of all, It's never easy running any business. So here's a guy who built a billion-dollar business who was never in debt, who was profitable from day one, and yet still... David said there wasn't a single quarter when he didn't have considerable challenges that he had to overcome. In many ways, an entrepreneur is just a problem solver. So if you're in business and you're feeling it's not easy, that's just normal. It's never going to change, particularly if you're pushing and you're ambitious and you want to grow even more. Number two, you're probably not too old. One of the interesting regrets that David had was when he was in his 40s, he thought he was too old to do another startup and he realizes in his early 60s, that's just ridiculous to think that at that age. And probably when he's in his 80s, he'll probably think 63 was not old as well. If you've got the energy, if you've got the motivation, you can still do it no matter what the age you are. Number three, the two obsessions, customer obsession and staff obsession. Customers are the people who obviously pay the bills, so you've really got to look for ways to maximize their experience and make sure that even though you might be selling a product that's somewhat similar to your competition, the experience they have with you is better than any with the competition. And then, of course, staff obsession. Look, we're in a point now in history where there's almost zero unemployment, and the top people, all kinds of companies want to offer them other jobs, want to offer them new opportunities, usually for more money. Therefore, you've got to treat your staff well just to retain them. And certainly, you've got to keep your staff feeling good and feeling wanted and feeling appreciated for them to do their best work in your company. And then finally, your word is your bond. So many people make idle promises, particularly to team members in their business. And it's just a moment for them, for the CEO or for the founder or the senior executive to make a promise like that. But sometimes for the next couple of years, that staff member is hoping that that promise is going to come true. If you say something's going to happen make it happen because when people know that you deliver on your word they will do almost anything to continue working with you. The Business Lounge. Check in because you never know who's there. Disrupt Radio. On Disrupt Radio you'll hear
1: Sunil Badami.
0: When you don't love what you do you're never paid quite enough but when you do love what you do nothing's too much trouble. What if you could turn your passions into profit?
1: The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work.
0: Finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do. How to work with AI before it takes your job. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home?
1: Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work. On The Next Shift.
0: Work is changing faster every day.
1: Live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.